And there's a major shift in this psalm right here. Uh, there's, you know, there's three parts of the psalm. The reason it was a three-part series is not just because that's the amount of weeks we wanted to have or something, but because um, the psalm has very uh, distinct, three very distinct parts. And as a matter of fact, some, uh, some of the commentators actually believe that um, these are, were three different psalms that got kind of pushed into one psalm. Uh, whether that's the case or not, I'm not really sure. You know, it might have been like one day the psalmist was writing something down and another day he did this. And uh, it, um, it could be that like uh, songwriters often do that, you know, where they uh, they write a portion of a song at one point and a portion of a song at another point, And then they kind of, oh, those two pieces fit together. And it might have been like that. But the, the, the uh, psalm takes a major turn at this point. So the first six verses really were focused on creation and the Lord of creation and seeing him as the designer and the maker. And there's, there's that awesome space of when you step out and see the majesty of God, it has, and we've all had those moments. I believe we've, if we're followers of the Lord, we've had the moments where we're just in awe of how amazing and how big God is. And when that happens, we get to a place of wonder and all sort of like if a kid, we were at the boardwalk. Um, we took a day to go to the boardwalk with our kids in Wildwood, and we were walk. Or not, uh, it wasn't Wildwood there. It was uh, Atlantic City. We were just gambling with the kids, and uh, we were uh, we went to the. Uh, there's like a rainforest cafe there. Uh, it was just you know it's like a jungle thing or so. And we go walking back to the car, and as we're walking back to the car. There's this, like, presence on the right, and I, you can feel the presence. We look in, and there's this candy store that is, like, huge, huge candy store. And it was like a tractor beam for my kids. You know, they're, like, sucked in. And they walk in, and they're, like, oh, you know, they're, like, in awe and wonder of how much candy could be here. And, of course, for God's seekers, when we're, like, the whole title of this series is Finding God. And so when we go out in nature and we begin to look around and see the designer, it's, like, it's an unending wealth of discovery of God to be found in nature. And, you know, it's, it's just there everywhere. It's all over the place. And we're like, wow, you know, and, and that's, it should be like a kid in a candy store for God chasers, you know, when we see creation. And what happens also, uh, at least for me, and I think for many of us, and certainly for the psalmist, is that our lives can be so impacted when we see the immensity of God, because sometimes our lives get too big. Do you know what I mean? Our, our details, our stuff just gets too big. And we see it as too big until we see the immensity of God. And all of a sudden, our lives and ourselves get put back into the place where they fit. In, not just in the universe, but in the commodity of the kingdom of God. You know, we are very uniquely loved and we are treasures of God. But we are also minuscule as well. And, and there's something really that can be really helpful about that, that whatever these circumstances are, whatever these difficulties are, whatever these things, like, look at how big this whole thing is and how big God is. It's not as big of a deal, this thing, as I thought it was when I look at how big my God is, you know, and that's an awesome thing. And we move from there into the next section, uh, which was last week, uh, where we started talking about the law and how then God takes, he, after we see all the immensity of who God is, then he takes out the book 
And he starts to tell us how it works and what the story is and who we are within it and how we're designed to live. And that's where the law of the Lord is perfect. And, it, and we, it, we get rejoicing in our heart and we get delight in our soul. We get revival in our soul. There, things work well when we fit into the story. And what this is, is this is where all of a sudden, like the manual of our lives and the story of our lives begin to describe things where everything starts to make sense. When you read the Bible and really, really, really read the Bible and study the Bible, all of a sudden we're like, this makes sense. This God who has designed it all actually has a design for me and how I fit within it. And there's like harmony. He designed it so that my life fits in harmony uh, with him in this world he created. It's not like I'm one with nature, like a pantheist or something. What it is is that I become one, truly become one with God. What does that mean, that I'm God? No, it doesn't mean that. But Jesus prayed before he went to the cross that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me. made, And he invites us into the triune nature where he's like, let them come join the family and walk with us. And that's his prayer before redemption. And so the law is the thing that shows us how he designed us to walk in this world with him. So then now we have like the wonder of a kid like, wow, God's awesome and we're beholding him and all the other stuff we can kind of let go of and we don't have to be stressed about everything. And then we see the unique design that God has all through it for us. And it's like, man, life makes sense. And at that point, it should be that everything's kind of honky-dory. You know, like this is where it should work. We have the amazing nature and we have God's revealed will. It should work. And then it doesn't. And this is where the psalm gets very real. Today is where the psalm finally gets real. It's not that it hasn't been real. It's just that like I can find God out in nature and experience that and it's awesome. And I can see the truth of him in the scripture and that's awesome. But where I'm living right now, there's still a gap between the immensity of who God is and the perfect design of how he's created me and then the reality of my life. And that's where this psalm gets very, very real. This is what happens. This is the problem of why it doesn't work. When I was about 12 years old, I used to dream of this weekend right here. You know what this weekend is? No. It's the weekend that there's a hurricane that's hitting the coast and it's kicking up huge waves. Excuse me. And I used to dream, like 12 years old, I'd be sitting there daydreaming envisioning in my head what happens at the initial, when that wave initially starts to peel and you drop down on the face of that wave and take a strong left turn and move down the face of that wave and the force that's behind you. I, you know, I would just imagine myself taking a left carve and going up and doing a snap turn up on the face of that thing and riding back down and feeling the energy of that wave. And I would just like, seriously, like daydream about this in my mind. All, exact, I knew exactly what I would do on that 12-foot hurricane wave. You know, I knew exactly what I would do. When I was much older, I had just graduated from college, and Hurricane Floyd hit. And I saw Hurricane Floyd. I saw the radar. I tracked the whole thing. I grabbed my Bronco, too, and threw my board on top, and I hopped and drove straight to the shore as everyone's coming off the island. I'm going on to the island, you know, and I remember jumping on, and it was, the, it was actually the day after Hurricane Floyd. They were letting you back onto the island, and I remember um, it was a strong west wind, which often happens, and when the west wind comes, it blows from the land into the ocean, and what it does is all that big, heavy, uh, tumultuous surf gets cleaned up. It just, the wind comes and pushes the waves up and it starts to look like Hawaii. 
And these big hollow waves with barrels in it. And the spray comes up off the top of the wave as it's breaking. It's just beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. The only thing you have to worry about is there's black flies everywhere that are biting you. And I remember driving down and getting down there and grabbing my board and walking out on the beach and looking and just being like, I've dreamed of these waves right here my whole life. I cannot wait to do all the things that I dreamed about doing. And so I jump in and I start to paddle and I get about eight feet into the surf and hit whitewater of a, of a wave that broke like maybe 75 yards out. And that whitewater hit me and put me on dry sand. It pushed me back so hard and so fast. And I was like, well, it's going to be a while till I get out there. And so I'm paddling, and I, you know, I was in shape, I was working out, and I'm paddling and paddling, and the closer I get to these thundering waves, the more I realize how scary it's going to be when I'm right in front of one of those waves breaking, and I'm still not on the other side of it. And all of a sudden, what seemed nice in my mind when I was on top of the wave looks a lot different when I'm laying flat on a board, looking up at a 12-foot wall of water that's about to break on me, you know? And I didn't have this picture in my head. I pictured this a lot differently in my head. And then I, rem- I finally got out. It took me about 45 minutes to get out. I finally got out. And then I go to drop down into the wave. And I remember the first wave, I'm paddling, I'm paddling. And what I had never thought about is when all that water spraying off the top of the wave, it's all coming up right in your face. And you can't see a blessed thing. You're completely blind. And you have a 12-foot drop in front of you that somehow you have to figure out how to get your board underneath of you and turning and get down the face of the wave so you can actually start to have fun on this wave. And if you don't do that, you get demolished by this wave. So I pulled out, and I didn't drop in because I was afraid. And then the second one, I pull out. Finally, on the third one, I'm like, I'm not doing this all day. I'm going to drop on the next wave. I drop. Did I pay for that? Paid for it. By the end of that day, I had to hold on to my board with my right hand as I got pushed in by the waves because my left hand, my shoulder was out of joint because I had dislocated my shoulder from one of these waves. And then I had to figure out how to get my board on top of my truck and figure out how to drive stick shift getting home with the dislocated shoulder. That's not the way I had it going in my head in my daydreams. I don't know what your dream was as a kid. Maybe it was playing with that orchestra. Maybe it was having that dream job. Maybe it was being a consultant to the president and telling him how their country should be run. You know, maybe it was whatever it is, whatever that thing is that like in your mind, like building this thing. But once we get past the daydream, if all of a sudden as a child, we got dropped into the middle of that situation, we would start to recognize details of what it takes to live in that situation that we didn't have working in our daydream. And all of a sudden, we would feel woefully inadequate. Video games do a terrible job of training us because they make us think that we can do things that we actually can't do. And what happens in our imaginations is awesome. It's awesome that God calls us to dream and to think about what he wants us to do. And that should inspire us. But the journey from the daydream to the reality is the journey of Psalm 19. And it's the journey of finding God. 
And when we walk from a place of seeing the immensity and the beauty of who God is, and then we begin to understand the order of who God is, something begins to shift in this psalm where all of a sudden the psalmist says this. And this is where we pick up. He's just understood that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It all makes sense. It all fits. And then we get to verse 12. Who can discern his errors. Who can discern his errors? Let's stop there for a second. What's this psalmist saying? It all makes sense, God. It all fits. It's all perfect. And then there's me. And what changes in the psalm here is that for the first part, it was focused on God in nature. The second part, it was focused on God in the law. But then it shifts, and this is the climax of the psalm. This is the culmination of the psalm. But notice that it doesn't focus first on God. It says, who can discern his errors? It's here. Because sometimes when it comes to finding God, it's not that we don't know where to look. And sometimes it's not just that we don't have the tools or know how to look. Sometimes the problem's a little closer to home. Sometimes the problem is me. And it's not that I don't know how to look. And it's not that I don't know where to look. I know he's there in creation, of course. I know he's there in the scriptures, of course. But maybe the problem isn't that I don't know how or don't know where. Maybe the problem is that there's something in here that's keeping me from seeing God. Like in a relationship where this person is frustrating me and they seem to be doing everything wrong. But maybe the reason is because for them, I'm looking for all the things they're doing wrong. Whereas there's another person who could do everything wrong and I'd have all sorts of grace for them. Ever notice that? Because some people, our hearts are not toward. And when our hearts are not toward them, we want to find all the faults in them. And for us as human beings, when we want to find God, as much as he's all around us in nature and as much as he's deep in the scripture, the biggest reason why we don't see God is because our hearts aren't fully toward him. And that's where the psalm starts to say, wow, I think that when I see the beauty of nature and I see the reality of this law, I start to see truth about myself. And this psalm gets very real. If we want to be God chasers, if we want to know God, then the number one thing that has to happen is we have to learn to be brutally honest with ourselves. That's where it starts in knowing God. Brutal honesty. That's where a relationship with God begins. Who can discern and who can know his errors? Jeremiah 17, 7. You probably know this one. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Lord searches, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to his fruitful deeds. This is this moment where, where the Lord's saying, says, you know, that whole thing about follow your heart, you know, if you look on the inside and just follow your heart, it'll lead you toward God. <laughs> that is a lie of the devil. My heart does not want to find God. My heart is restless until it finds God. But God is right here all the time. My heart tries to play tricks on me all day long. Trying to tell me that I want God, but
but getting my mind to justify all the reasons why I'm not engaging God. The heart is desperately sick. It's deceived. My desires wage war within me. And Paul talks about this all the time. There's a war that's waging inside of me about part of my heart that's going this way away from God, but the redemptive part of God's spirit inside of me that's drawing me toward him. But the honesty of being able to see the darkness in my own heart and say this part of me does not want to yield itself to God. And so I can't experience the amazing beauty of what the law can actually be in my life because I don't want to submit to it. And I can't see the beauty of God in nature because I'd much rather be focused on my own stuff than focused on the reality of God all around me. And it's my heart that deceives me because my heart is wicked. The gospel is not built on people doing things right. The gospel is built on people knowing that they're doing almost everything wrong. That's the starting place of the gospel. Paul talks about it this way. If you uh, look forward into 1 Corinthians chapter 4, this is awesome. I love Paul's words. They're so uh, comforting and uh, rebuking at the same time. 1 Corinthians 4, 2 to 4, he says, Moreover, it is required of stewards or servants of God that they be found faithful. It is required of us that we be found faithful. Well done, good and faithful servant. It is required of us that we be found faithful. And he says, But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. So he says, whatever anyone around me judges as faithfulness, I don't really care. doesn't matter. I'm supposed to be faithful in the eyes of God. But what you think about that or what everybody else thinks about that, Paul's saying, I don't really care. And then he says this, in fact, I do not even judge myself. He says, I'm not the final authority in per, like looking at my own life. Why? Because the heart's desperately wicked and deceitful above all else. This is what he says. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. This is an awesome moment where, where Paul, I mean, I mean, Paul, right? It's Paul. And Paul's saying, I have to be found faithful in front of God. Whether you think that's the case or not, that's whatever. I can't even decide that. God is the one who has to decide that. He says, my conscience right now feels clear. I don't see anything going on in my life that is convicting me at this point in my life. But because of that, I do not feel acquitted. I do not recognize it. And this is a man who understands the gospel more than anyone else. Why does he say that? Because Paul understands something very deep and very important that's expressed right here in Psalm 19. It says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. There's an understanding in King David and there's an understanding in the Apostle Paul that there's all sorts of things going on in my mind and in my heart that I can't see and can't understand because I don't want to see it and I don't want to understand it. And because of that, there's no way that I'm going to stand in a place and act like I got it together. There is no way that I'm going to stand before God and be like, okay, I think we're probably at a spot where we can be good now because there's been enough cleansing in my life. No way. Way. 
And Paul continues. I mean, he's the one who says, the closer I get, the, fir- the more I realize how far away I actually am. I am the chief of sinners. And he doesn't say that in a past tense. He says it in a present tense. And what he's saying is, he's like, I don't, the more I know, the more I realize just how lost I am and just how depraved I am. Just how, and that is the humble factor right there. Bam. If I want to know God, be careful when I think I stand. Be careful when I think I stand. And we are um, consistently offered ways to believe that, uh, that we can have confidence outside of God. If we have this slice of theology, or if we've, we, we see this level of fruit in my life, or if I have this going on, then I can be confident that, that's, you know, that I'm in this great place with the Lord. And all that falls flat because what ends up happening is as soon as I have a question about my theology, then the enemy is going to be like, see, I told you. And as soon as like there's some place in my life where I'm not living as effectively as I thought I should be, then the enemy is going to be like, see, I told you. There's only one place to have confidence. There's only one place at all to have confidence. It's that I'm a sinner and he's a savior. It's the, it's the core. It's the gospel. And it, we never, if we ever move past the gospel then we have moved past a relationship with God because there is no relationship with God outside of the gospel. So as mature as we grow, as deep as we understand the scripture, as much as we start to get engaged in kingdom life and do all those things, at the very core, if we ever get past the place of complete and utter dependency on his grace, then something happened in the gifts that he's given me, in the knowledge that he's blessed me with, in the works that he's allowed me to do. Something started the shift where I started to put confidence in the theology, in the works, or in whatever else instead of confidence in God. And when I do that, I'm deceived by the enemy and I'm exposing myself because he's got, he knows he's got me now because all he has to do is make me see one little failure that I have and woe is me. I'm undone. But the core of the gospel stays the same, that we as followers of Christ, if we want to know God, we always have to hold two things at the same time. One is, I am a complete depraved sinner. And that does not change here on earth. I am redeemed and I am washed. And by the eyes of God, I am forgiven. And my identity in him is the other thing that I need to hold on to. That I am redeemed because of nothing that I've done, but because of everything I've, that he's done. The reason that my joy should never be stolen from me is because no one can undo the cross and the resurrection. I can definitely undo how well I'm living. I do it all the time just to ask my family. And you guys are like, no, we could testify to that without asking your family. Like, we constantly bomb our lives, even when we've made progress. Then we see like, oh man, I went back to that spot where I was like holding on to that. I thought I had forgiven that person for that and now I'm holding it against him again. I thought I had stopped being materialistic and then all of a sudden, whatever it is, you know, and it just comes back again. And if we play that game in our head where we're still judging ourselves, that's what Paul says in Galatians. Why when you came to Christ in a posture of grace, do you now return to this whole thing of trying to figure out whether you're doing it right enough or not? The law is there to bless us, and it is the roadmap. But what happens is when we see the law, we remember our depravity, our brokenness. So the psalmist deals with that, and this is, what, this is where we need to, um, to hit. Okay, it says, Declare me innocent from hidden faults. 
Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Okay, so there's two different kinds of sins that he talks about. What are the two sins that he talks about here? Hidden sins and presumptuous sins. Now, um, there's probably a number of different ways to, to understand a hidden sin. Hidden could be hidden from people. So I have a hit, like a secret sin. Um, that's probably not what this is saying, although it would be relevant. You know, that sin that I have that no one else knows about that's behind the, behind the scenes. It could also be the one that everyone else knows about and I don't know about, you know, because those are hidden sins and we all have them. You know that, right? Like all of us have that thing, like that physical feature about ourselves, or that spiritual feature or that personality feature. We all have things that people see in us that we don't see about ourselves, our blind spots, you know? And uh, grace grace. The community's built on grace. But then there's the other kind of sin that no one knows about. And I believe that's what God's talking about. The deep iniquity. The deep iniquity where we've gotten to a place where we don't even, we're not even aware anymore. That we are outside of God's law and his design in ways that we can't even comprehend. As a matter of fact, in Numbers and in Leviticus, when the law was designed, God made allowance for these things called unintentional sins. And he didn't make allowance for them in the sense that they were okay. But there was like a blanket sacrifice that they would make, that they would offer on behalf of all the unintentional sins. Because there was an assumption that there was going to be unintentional sin. So like, I don't understand the law enough from God. So I'm doing something that's wrong without even knowing that it's wrong. This happens on like levels that I don't think any of us can even fathom or imagine how much we live outside of the designs that God has for us. And so deep, deep, deep in the way that we relate to one another and relate to our world and all of that, there is just a fundamental brokenness in us. And when we see a little step and someone go the right direction and one person loves another, it's like, get out the pom-poms and start doing the flips because we actually, God moved and we got one right. You know, and that's what's like amazing about God piercing the darkness with the light of Jesus. When he comes in, the assumption is the world is dark and we need Jesus to pierce with light. And he calls us to be light of the world. But we understand that that gospel that comes inside of us needs to work itself out in our lives. And that the general place inside of all my being is darkness. And that there's a seed of light in the gospel that gets planted that starts to work itself out. But that's a lifelong journey. And then if I want to look and judge myself or judge others, there's ample, ample resource to do that. But that does not negate the cross and resurrection of Jesus. He's at work in that person's life and he's at work in my life. But there are still hidden sins. And it's very important for us to be aware of this because um, you remember um, Josiah. You guys remember who Josiah is? He's this king, and he's been in a long line of kings. He's in the line of David. And there's this moment, this brutal moment. If you t- uh, we're oh, almost out of time here. Second Chronicles. Turn to Second Chronicles, please. 34. So 
in verse 19, they were just cleaning out the temple. Josiah, this young guy, had a fire in his heart. God had put a fire in his heart, and he decided to clean out the temple of God, which had been in shambles. And when they do, they find the law, and he has them read the law. And when they read the law, all of a sudden, and this is like this psalm, like, okay, there's got to be a God. Okay, there's a temple. Let's clean out the temple. And then there's the book. Oh, this is how life's supposed to work. And when they do, they're just completely slain with grief because of how far outside of God's direction um, they're living. And then in verse 19, it says, And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded a bunch of people, (laughs) flip over to uh, the end of 21, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me. And for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book, that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Notice that he opens up the book, he reads it, and he looks and he says, this is the way life's supposed to be. And he looks around and he says, woe are we, broken, broken. We will be tempted this November to think that who ends up in the office is a big deal. And I'm not saying there is an importance to it, but I will promise you this, that there is nothing that either one of those candidates, any of those candidates can do that is more important than what we as people of God can do on our knees. And if we ever, ever move from that thought or think from a thought different than that, then we are living from the posture of iniquity and placing our trust in princes instead of placing our trust in the Lord. And I am very capable in my own heart of looking at all the flaws in our world without seeing the flaws in my heart. And when I understand that there is a brokenness in our culture that is systemic and epic, then I understand that that is based on consumerism, is based on broken covenants, it's based in selfishness and in unforgiveness, it's based on not loving the person next to me, it's based on greed, it's based on all of those things that are within me. And that the most important thing I can do, the very most important thing I can do as an American citizen as a child of God, as a father, as a, as a dad, as a husband, in all those places, the most important thing I can do is get back to reading this book and saying, man, God, I am so far off. Please, Jesus, your way is the right way. Forgive me for all the stuff I'm not seeing. Show me what you want me to see and help me to stay closer now and and pull more fully because the brokenness that we're feeling in society is based on many, many, many little decisions by many, many people that have led us to a place where there's a breakdown in family, there's a breakdown in citizenship, there's a breakdown in understanding of the word of God. And so then, what does it look like? It looks like Josiah saying, oh my goodness, Lord, we need you. We need you. All right. There's a whole lot more in this text. There's a whole lot more. We obviously don't have time for all that today. So I just want to say this. If you 
ask yourself the questions that I do at times, whether I ask them out loud or even tell myself that I'm asking them or whether they're just back in the back of my head. Things like, have you accomplished enough? Or am I good enough? Or uh, questions like, are my beliefs exactly right in this? Or have I messed up too bad? If any of those things linger in your head and the enemy wants to mess with you, I just want to like stand as a, a pastor with you, as a, a leader here with you, and, and just say, yes, you have messed up too bad. And yes, you uh, have, have definitely failed in your belief system. You don't have it all figured out. And 100%, no doubt about it, you have not accomplished all that God wants you to accomplish. But let me also say that that is why there is a hound, a hound, a hound that came from heaven sniffing out how in the world he could find the trail that leads back to you. And he bayed for us. And he cried for us. And he came and found us. And he will always find us. And he will always rescue us. And if we want to find God, and if we want to know God in the immensity of creation and in the perfectness of the law, the one thing that is required of us is to say, I don't have the corner on the market. I am not more righteous than that person. I am not the one who stands. I cannot stand before God and say, I got this right, so therefore I should think I'm okay with God. I got one move and one move alone. Use it real carefully. Here's the move. I got nothing, God, except you. That's all I got. Rescue me. And he says, I have. Trust me. I got you. I got you. I got you. If you've never experienced that, if you've never experienced that gospel, if you've never experienced the invading presence of God's grace in your life, then you need to come talk to me after this service because you're messing out. I promise you. Okay. And if you have experienced it many times, I invite you again, lay it all at the feet of Jesus and receive it. Receive it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your gospel. It's so, so earth-shattering gospel. Earth-shattering gospel. And what we have broken, you put back together. You are the redeemer. This text ends right there. Our rock and our redeemer. We thank you and praise you. We thank you and praise you, our rock and our redeemer. We close with the last verse here, God. This is just all of us together. I'll say it on behalf of all of us. But may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight, not because it earns anything, not because it earns anything, our rock and our redeemer, but because we want to flow with you. So restore us to flow with you. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you.